Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host, Dave Sedia, and today on the panel, we've got Lucas Heche. Hello, everybody. And Leslie Conween. Hey, y'all. And as a guest today, we have Varya Stepanova to talk to us about design systems. Hi, everyone. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. So, Varya, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. I started as a front-end de- developer uh, back in uh, Russia, where I'm from originally. I worked for a, a large company called Yandex. Uh, probably you've heard about it as Russian Google. Yeah, and um, <laughs> there I participated in development of different services, but uh, among everything, I also stepped into developing libraries of UI components, which were used across whole company, meaning in hundreds of services. And since then, I'm in this topic. It uh, has been evolving a lot and still. So back then, it was developing UI components, but uh, later we started to speak about that as a style guide-driven development and so on and so on. And currently, it grew even bigger up to connecting designers, developers, and business levels, and managing the process. And now we are calling all these things design systems. And this is the buzzword for today. That's nice. Uh, Varya, I have a question for you. First of all, like, what are design systems? Because I think that this is one of those concepts that a lot of people have like different understandings. So what's your take on that? Yeah, exactly. There is no uh, certain definition. And since it is yet evolving concept, I think uh, we probably will not get the definition soon. Everyone understands uh, different things by uh, design systems. And that's okay, because uh, different companies uh, really need different things from design systems. So some people uh, think that they are probably libraries of components some have more design perspective and they include into the meaning uh, more design-related things like tone of voice and uh, concepts of the patterns. And uh, also we can uh, scale it even bigger and include into that the processes of um, taking decisions in the company, at least design-wise decisions and sometimes development-wide decisions. So it it really depends on the company and on its needs and on a project, how much of design systems you take. But summing it all up, I would say that 
design systems is a systematic approach to providing uh, coherent products under the same brand. Or if we are speaking about just one product, it is coherent in itself. So I'm curious, does every company need a design system? Not necessarily, but it really depends on uh, how large product is and um, how fast and speedy you are developing. So at some point, it turns out that design systems help to speed up the development and they make sure that the brand is more consistent. So once uh, these are the problems you are facing, then you need design system. That makes sense. So it sort of sounds like you could you could sort of start small and then evolve a larger design system, like start with a component library or something and kind of evolve it as, as you need more capability from your system? Yeah, this is uh, the, the path uh, most companies I've seen uh, were taken. Usually it comes from like development. Uh, it, usually it comes from development side. Because it's uh, probably much easier for developers to automate the routine than for designers. And so the developers, they uh, provide some reusable things, let's say components, as a component library, and then it might grow into design system. I've also seen examples of um, getting a design system from another uh, from another side, like starting from design department, when designers tried to document their work and the technical implementation were added later. But these were very rare examples. Usually it comes, as you said, from a library of components. I feel like that first step, like you said, is sort of, it makes sense how you get from nowhere to sort of having a component library. I'm curious, sort of like once you've got that step, where do you go from there? In my experience, um, we really invested in the in-house community because uh, as an example, I can provide the last project I participated. It was uh, for ELISA, which is a local telecommunication operator here in Finland and in Estonia. So we had a library of components Simple. It was uh, in the beginning simple HTML CSS library, even no uh, React components or Angular components, just HTML and CSS. And once we had enough, uh, we invested into uh, building, let's say, our in-house design and development community, regular meetings for designers and developers together, so that they shared um, some new design approaches they use at their products. And the design system team uh, was always presented so that we could somehow moderate and help them to implement uh, the things that they were uh, thinking um, to have soon. And um, together with that, we also got uh, some contributions from the developers and uh, contributions from uh, from designers in the form of suggestions and reviewings. And later we stepped uh, into automating different routines. But be- before that automation happened, it was like bringing something which we should automate, <laughs> meaning the process. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like get something working first before you try to automate it, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, later we even had uh, kind of uh, our own workflow, which I never published, but I'm go- I'm going to. It is a bit special from workflow of usual projects, but that was one of the points. First, implementation and automation was the last phase. Yeah, I have a bunch of questions regarding like how how do you maintain this like through time? But before that, I think I think I already uh, told this uh, small story. My it's uh, related to design system. My brother he worked as a web designer in the '90s for Cartoon Network when they were launching their their cartoons. There were like websites with like small games and stuff like that. And one day he brought home a book that was the design system for like Powerpuff Girls. And the book, actually like half the book was like which images were which file names in the CD-ROM. So you could use the images in your, in your page. But the most interesting part that, that I remember is like there's also like which colors you can use and stuff like that. But the most interesting part was there was like a behavioral section. Things like the Powerpuff Girls cannot fight evil during the night because they are kids, so they should be sleeping, you know, things like that. They, they can also fight evil, like, during the uh, school hours. And there was, there was a bunch of, like, things that you, as a, as a designer or, or as a dev, like, you, can, you, you, you need to be careful to, to, to implement because it is coherent with the story that, that you're trying to tell. So I know that when, you, when I see like material-wide design system stuff, there is a bunch of like guidelines through like that, that are not only code that, that you share, but also maybe like more higher level concepts. So is that part of, how do you think that relates to, to, to design system or in your experience? First of all, thank you for that example about the cartoons. <laughs> I really love it. And once again, it shows that all our IT concepts, they come from real life. (laughs) And there is not that much what we could think up. We just need (laughs) to apply it. (laughs) Yeah. And as for your question, actually, this could be also answered to previous question because uh, this could be a next step from library of components. The components give us a suggestion uh, how we can build our interface if we have uh, existing like pieces of interface. And what's next? The next would be nice to have instructions how to provide new patterns. I, I think it's better to use word patterns here because it's not so much about implementation but about design and user interaction. Let's say I'm a designer and... Uh, we are had means a library of components. It doesn't say much about how I should design new things. Yeah, of course I can design by analogy, but it's not very like specific guidance. And if if we want to develop design system forward, we could make this process conscious so that we could provide designers with instructions how they make new patterns. And uh, all these color panels and uh, maybe margin guidelines, they contribute in, into that, into instructions for designers how, how to make new patterns. 
In your experience, Varya, I'm curious who owns that process, right? Clearly, like there are a lot of stakeholders in this. There's management, there's, you know, business problems, there's front-end developers, there's designers. Who sort of needs to take ownership of, of, of this process? There are different governance models, and uh, there is a, even a model when there is uh, no owner of a design system. Some people say that it's working, but in my experience, I've never seen, <laughs> I've never evidenced that. And I do believe that there should be a design system team, or at least one person who is patient about design system as, as, as about a product. Because I've always seen it as in-company in product or in-company service, and it should uh, have some owner. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is probably like the the toughest problem to solve because I've been in in situations where we had like the the shared library, the design system with no no owners. It's like this should be everybody's, like everybody owns it, and in the end, like nobody owns it. So you have infrastructure tasks that nobody does, like how to make the tests better, how to make the build more, I don't know, more efficient. So it seems that, uh, so you think that the solution is, we, we can only solve that by like actually having someone owning the, the, the design systems? Yeah, I think so. I also believe that design systems should be built by community. Because people uh, developing actual products, they are facing the user's needs and they are the most valuable resources, like sources of information for the design system. But for co coordinating uh, the efforts of these people, you do need some like maintainer of a design system or owner of a design system. Yeah, that seems like the easier way to go. Because I've definitely been in the same situation as Lucas where and like the, the dev team decided like, hey, we should have a component library. And so that was kind of like the on-roads into this thing. And then we kind of recruited the designer to, to help us with the style guide and stuff. But but it was always sort of a, it is sort of ambiguous, like who owns it. And there's there's kind of like there, there's the part that everyone wants to get out of it. Like everyone wants the the guidance and the component library and stuff like that. But like Lucas mentioned, there's this, there's the tests, there's the CI stuff, there's the keeping it working, there's keeping it up to date, there's documentation that, you know, it, it's like you want to have it, but no one wants to write it. So it definitely would be easier to have like some like a design system team. Yes, I, I, another another question I have uh, regarding like this uh, projects that are shared by many other projects is how do you deal with uh, breaking changes on a design system like? What if uh, I have a, a new, I don't know, calendar, something simple as a calendar component that now have like some, some, some uh, it, it doesn't have a previous behavior, it's a breaking change. How do you deal with that in a design system? Do you create a new one? Do you, do you, how do you deprecate? How do you make sure that these changes are implemented by the, by the different projects? Is it a real problem? Is it not a real problem? How do you deal with that? Yeah, it is a huge uh, problem and uh, there is no trivial solution. Again, you can approach it from, from different sides. And I would also divide your question into two parts. First one was about how you uh, provide new things and make sure that uh, nothing breaks at the products. And another part is how you deprecate old things. Because there are 
different approaches to these two. Mm. So about uh, the new things, uh, the easiest uh, way would be just to follow like uh, v- versions at, at your library. Let's take Semver and be strict about breaking changes so that we always increment version correctly when uh, we might break something at the, at the product. Then we can provide a change log, which is actually not can, we must provide change log, <laughs> uh, so that uh, we instruct uh, our fellow developers how to apply this new version and what could be broken at their project so that they could check and fix it if necessary. But here we have to remember that all the breaking, breaking changes, they can postpone the uh, upgrades because it's always more work for our, our users. Yeah, and um, that was the simplest thing to do. We also can um, go here a little bit advanced. For example, our latest idea at the project was uh, to scan the repositories in our GitHub enterprise so that we knew which uh, products uh, are using different components. And then we we could address directly to these people. So we are going to break the calendar. Is it okay with you? Do you need some help with updating? And so on and so on. Yeah. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can also provide some tooling for updating. For example, if you know how the code should be changed with the projects so that your new calendar is working, you can write a small let's say even shell script, which, which changes to the files and so on. That was for providing new stuff. And um, deprecated old stuff is actually much more complex. <laughs> so what we did, we never deleted uh, old thing. So because we wanted, uh, like at first, we wanted to, to be sure that it doesn't break for, for projects. But we marked it in documentation as deprecated and we tried to use our community channels to encourage people for switching to a new component. And um, when it's done, then it was deleted. Yeah, so I was watching a video uh, from Rich Hickey, the guy that uh, created the Clojure language. I love all the talks, all his talks. He's like so, so smart, lots of interesting thoughts. There is one talk, I'll, I'll try to find it here, that he talks about not ever deleting anything. He said, like, I think we should namespace everything. Like, if you create, if you, if you do, like, a breaking change of a function in a library, there's no reason you should, you should delete the previous version. Just namespace it so it's like a sender but on the function or on the component level. And this is interesting. So I was thinking that back in, in my previous job that I was working in, that, in this project, I was thinking about everything that was deprecated would like issue maybe warnings on dev if we're if we running on dev and uh, not ever deleting them. But there are some changes that need to be propagated, right? So this is, yeah, I think it's one of the toughest <laughs> problems to solve when you have like a bunch of projects and a bunch of teams. Yeah, exactly. This not deleting ever doesn't really fit for the design systems because we have to change 
we have to make sure that brand is coherent, but not deleting for some time is a kind of compromise. <laughs> ever, ever is too long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. It's also interesting to think about styling in this context when we're talking about design systems, right? Because CSS is global. You can run into a lot of issues, I think, as you're sort of developing um, your styles out. And so I don't, I don't know, Barya, you've talked, or I've read some, some things that you've written about like visual regression tests and how to like check diffs of styles, right? If you're releasing sort of new style of something, I'm curious sort of how you've worked visual regression tests into your process. Yeah, due to the declarative nature of CSS, visual regression tests are the must, and especially for a design system, because we provide a library, but we never know how it is, how exactly it is used on the, pro on the products. And so we, we have to ensure that I, at least as isolated these components look <laughs> as they used to look in previous version, and we, we didn't break anything. And I came to this through experience, unfortunately, through my own experience. I used to tell a funny story at the conferences, which is only funny now, but <laughs> when it happened, it was not so funny. Again, it was developing a library of hundreds of components by that time, and I provided some changes, which apparently broke all the buttons. But I was developing some other component. I didn't notice about the, the buttons and I could never guess that my changes could affect a, a simple thing as a button. So I released the library, which product guys were already waiting for. And they updated and released. Or they also didn't notice that something happened with the buttons uh, at their projects. And they, they released. And how we learned about that one big boss called another big boss and asked uh, why they couldn't buy anything in their web shop because there is no add to cart button. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. And since then, I always do visual regression tests. But when it happened, I started to like revisit why it happened. Even though it was my code, it was not really my fault because literally... If you're speaking about hundreds of components, you cannot review them all, like man manually. Just uh, And I was thinking how we could automate that because it's just uh, like, this is something what robots should do, not humans, because this is uh, so uh, like monkey job, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, and then I implemented visual, visual regression tests. I tried different solutions. So 
even cannot list them all because there were many. There was something by BBC, uh, then Gemini by Yandex. Uh, but lately I came to visual regression tests which come with a storybook as a plugin or with style guides. There are even several plugins for visual regression tests. Yeah, I, I've already used Percy for that. And it works uh, pretty well too. They have like a dashboard that you can compare like previous, uh, for every PR it runs and compares with the previous version. So you can see like on the pixel level, like what changed from one PR to the other. It's really useful. Yeah, there are many solutions. I prefer the one which you can run in console because mm -hmm. uh, we use console a lot at, at our project and there are even some which can output the images right in console. But it doesn't matter which solution you use. Just in general, please use visual regression tests. <laughs> yes. But how to deal with the fact that the library is going to be used by different projects and maybe like it already happened with me that everything is fine with all the tests in the in the shared library and as soon as i import to two other projects things start uh, to break how do uh, how do you make sure it doesn't break like the other the other projects how to make sure like things are isolated well enough and things like that yeah if you're speaking about pure css again due to declarative nature of css you cannot 100 percent guarantee that nothing will be broken because not only your code is working, but also code at the project and sometimes even code from third-party services. Here, there is no, uh, like, uh, answering a question how you make sure, <laughs> I must say, I, I don't. Yeah, but there are suggestions for our users so that they could have visual regression tests for their product, at least mm -hmm. for the critical parts, uh, let's say for selling pages or, or such then they at least don't uh, release broken things. And also, uh, uh, with more advanced technologies, like if we, if we are speaking not uh, about pure CSS HTML components, if we do provide isolated things, like with CSS modulus or with uh, styled components, mm -hmm. then uh, this, uh, like, if, if we uh, use more advanced technologies and provide our components uh, not on pure CSS HTML, but with uh, CSS modules or uh, styled components or other solutions like that, then we can be more sure that everything mm -hmm. is going to be okay at the project. Yes. Yeah, it sort of seems like the difference between almost like unit testing versus integration testing, like you test your design system versus testing like where that design system is plugged into. Yeah, yeah. You kind of want both levels. Like you want to make sure that design system doesn't break, but then like once it's plugged into things, as long as it um, you know, makes sure it works everywhere. I guess another tool might be, I guess it's not so visual, but like Cypress, like an end-to-end -end testing tool might be a good way to just click through the app and make sure that, you know, because I guess some, some visual changes could break things entirely. Like maybe those add to cart buttons or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, also... I believe that some uh, monorepo solutions, like if you have all your projects in the same repo and you can detect like, okay, so I changed like this particular, like the header, and these are the three projects that are using the header. So in this particular PR that changes it, it will also run the test for the three projects that use it. 
I think that's that's one of the the benefits of the monorepo architectures is you can run regression tests on the clients of your particular libraries. Yeah. So this is yeah this is a benefit too of that monorepo. I'm starting to work on a company that uses monorepo. So let's see. I've never worked before. I'll have some more experience to share <laughs> later so, episodes. Yeah. As we talk about like tools, I'm curious how you choose sort of like the infrastructure or the technology you're going to use for perhaps like a design system website or sort of where you're like hosting the documentation in the component library itself. Is it, you know, storybook versus style guidest or, you know, um, Gatsby, like what, what are the options and how do you start to make some of those decisions? Yeah. So my latest experience building design system website was with Gatsby. And I also used a storybook and style guides, but they provided a part of design system website because I do believe that we need not only documentation for components separately, but also documentation about uh, design system as a whole thing and uh, instructions for designers how to provide new patterns and uh, sometimes uh, reasoning behind our technical and design solutions and so on and so on. So it has to be a bit more flexible than just uh, generated documentation. And this is uh, why uh, I've chosen Gatsby. Before, I was trying to do the same thing with Metalsmith and it worked also quite well. But Gatsby is even better. I think it's uh, the matter of choice, uh, literally, because whatever you as a developer is comfortable with and uh, what is fast for you, just take this solution. I'm curious why you like Gatsby more. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that versus Metalsmith? Yeah, sure. No, of course, uh, initially I was motivated by the fact that it is a new thing. I didn't know that I'm going to like it. I was just uh, going to try. But I really like that it has so uh, it, it has a lot of uh, plugins and these plugins are developed by a huge community. So it, it literally translates into the size of the project, the uh, amount of uh, possibilities Gatsby provides, and many things which I had to implement uh, manually with other solutions like Metalsmith, and it used to be Docpad before that. Gatsby just has a plugin for that. And it was uh, very easy and flexible for me. And by now, I think that uh, if I start another design system project, I will go with Gatsby again. I'm always really interested in the tools because I think I found sort of when working often at the beginning of a design system project, you struggle with that kind of space between wanting flexibility and being able to customize what you're doing and trying to get something up quickly and sort of craving some sort of framework to to communicate what you're trying to put out there. And so that's kind of, it's it's interesting to hear your experience because I, I feel like sometimes I want to go with something that's a little bit more pre-baked but I can see long-term how that flexibility is, is really useful. Yeah, it was initially a bit hard to study Gatsby because it uh, was a completely new concept for me. But uh, once this learning curve is over, <laughs> it, it became very well and flexible. And so now I, I'm loving it. 
This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. This would be a good time to go to picks. So let's see who's got picks this week. How about start with Lucas? Yeah, I can start. So in this late, uh, this last weeks, since now I have a newborn at home, I've been uh, staying with her uh, a lot. So I've been not being in a coding state of mind in my free time. But so I'm gonna go back to the basics. This uh, in my picks. I'm going to say, please run all your web pages and please uh, run everything that you work with that is web-based on webpagetest.org. This site is free. It's open source. They will like create a request for, for a page, analyze your page load, like which requests you're making, which servers are you open connection, like how long things are taking. This is really like a great picture of your uh, page load. So it's like you, you can learn so much uh, from, from looking at the outputs of uh, web page test. And if you want to go deeper, I also really liked and I used a lot a tool called Speed Curve, which they essentially, they started as... Uh, a company that was doing that was like you can run a bunch of web page tests through like maybe three or four times a day and they and then you can see how you're getting better or getting worse with time like it, you can compare different uh, deploys and stuff now they're getting like more better and better like they're adding real time user monitoring so yeah these are my two picks for the day like look at your page Look at these uh, tools and you learn a lot about your page. Awesome. Thanks. Leslie. Yeah. So on topic today, uh, I've got a book to recommend on design systems. In fact, it's called Design Systems. Uh, I believe the <laughs> author is Ala Kolmatova. I apologize for totally uh, butchering the name. It's a book published by Smashing Magazine. So you can just go on Smashing Mag and, and check out the book. I'd say it's probably geared a little bit more towards sort of like design system beginner thinking and sort of starting to figure it out. But as I was sort of starting to explore this whole world, I found it really, really useful. And there's some really interesting um, case studies in there as well that kind of walk you through how other companies have started thinking about this and implementing it. It gives you kind of a wide range of sizes of companies as well, which I think is, is awesome. And something totally unrelated to coding uh, and is probably also a little bit old by now, but I just finished watching The Umbrella Academy on Netflix um, <laughs> and thought it was a lot of fun. It's sort of like moody and had really great music. And if you ever uh, want to check out a fun show, I'd recommend it. Awesome. 
So for my picks, I've got uh, really just really just one and not tech related at all. But I recently watched Captain Marvel, and it was just just an awesome movie. If you if you enjoy superhero movies, I thought I thought Brie, Brie Larson did an awesome job playing the character and stuff, and it's just a just a fun movie. And yeah, that, I think that's it for me. So Varya, do you have any picks? Yes, I have one. It's not a recent thing I learned, but once again, I realized how important it was. So as a developer, do try to educate yourself about service design and design thinking. It will really help you, even for development, because you will better understand your users. And by users here, I mean not only the people uh, who are using our products, but also sometimes they are our fellow developers or our fellow designers and so on. So I experienced it myself. I studied uh, service design and design thinking in university. And when I applied to my work with design systems, I got significant results. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's that's about to wrap up this episode. So thanks, Varya, so much for joining us and talking about design systems today. Where can people go to find you online? I'm most active in Twitter. So here I'm uh, Varya underscore in. And I guess the link will be in the description of the podcast. Yeah, it will. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.